Welcome back to Stream Again, the podcast where we try to watch everything the streaming universe has to offer, uh, even if it kills us. It is November 1st, Day of the Dead, when you're listening to this, perhaps, if you are just waiting in your podcast player for every episode to come out. So, happy Day of the Dead. And if you're listening to this on any of the 364 other days of the year, well, death comes for us all. And uh, who are we who death is coming for? I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and I'm joined across the internet uh, by a lively Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? Oh, I'm doing great. I thought you were going to introduce me as the John Doe killer, but... Thanks for not letting that out. (laughs) No, 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 no. I keep your secrets. And there are many secrets we're going to keep on this episode until the appointed hour, because this episode is a rewind review uh, where we go spoiler heavy and do a whole season recap of a show we just finished watching. And that show happens to be about a serial killer. So death is on the mind. It is indeed. But you know, that show... I really liked it, and I can't wait to talk more about it. It's called The Patient. We reviewed the first couple of episodes a little while ago, so if you want a refresher, that's in your podcast feed. But don't worry, no spoilers right now. We have plenty to talk about before we get to the death and dismemberment hour, and I'm not even saying that there is dismemberment, because that might be a spoiler. So again, I'm just saying, death comes for us all, and dismemberment comes for some of us. But first... Let's follow up with some uh, very, uh, well, okay, this is also about dead people, but vampires. Uh, Last week, we reviewed Interview with the Vampire on AMC and AMC+. Uh, We both really enjoyed it. I'm still watching. Are you still watching, Diane? Sure am. Spooky season. Yeah. Also, like, I would watch this any time of year. Me too. And... And you will be able to watch even more of it because last week we neglected to mention that it has already been renewed for season two. So if you needed any more encouragement to go uh, spend a little time with Lestat, well, there it is. One other final piece of encouragement. Uh... The vampires are very handsome. Truly, truly. Again, this is an audio medium, so you may not know how handsome we're talking, but oh, oh boy. Anyway, that's not our only piece of follow-up. No, no, no. Before I get stuck staring at the beautiful eyes of these two beautiful men, because there is a little photo of them in the thumbnail in our notes. But no, there is another show with two... Uh, very less attractive people in the thumbnail. One of them is a dragon. Uh, And and this would be a quick update on Game of Thrones, colon, House of the Dragon. It ended. The season finished. We're not going to talk about that this week right now, but I do want to mention that it it was successful. I, I would say, just objectively, it looks like HBO Max has a hit. Yeah, and Casey Bloys seems to think so, too. That is the head of HBO, Casey Bloys. Uh, it seems like this decision to put it at the same time as Game of Thrones really helped them. Yeah, like uh, the exact same time slot. I still think the exact same theme music may be a little too on the nose, but I do mm. appreciate what they were going for now, and and I think it worked. I do, too. I mean, people seem to be watching. I'm going to be honest and say I'm not entirely sure why, but people are watching those dragons. And that show also has some attractive people If that's what you're into. Oh, yes. And then they put a lot of old age makeup on some of them. But uh, no spoilers. We're not there yet. Uh, I do want to mention something Casey Bloys said. He said, uh, if you are just a huge fan, you're in love with this new series. You're so excited. You can't wait for more. Well, you might want to reconsider that last part because you will be waiting until 2024 for more House of the Dragon. 
Sounds like they've still got a ton of work to do before that's ready to come out. They haven't even set a date for 2024, so. Nope. I, I wonder where uh, that decision comes from, why they didn't uh, decide to maybe fast-track that. Uh, did they really think it might fail? That's my thought, is did they think it was going to be a flop? Did they think there was at least a f- decent enough chance that they were like, you know, we're not going to sign the contracts for season two until we're sure? That is an interesting thought. I'm not sure because it was renewed quickly. Yes, they were going to make a season two no matter what. So I just wonder why. Maybe, maybe there's more thought going into the creative changes behind the scenes. Uh, they did, you know, shift showrunner pretty much right after it premiered, but that was not a surprise either. So again, you know, not sure why, but uh, I guess we will have a long, long time to speculate about it. The impatient part of me doesn't love this news, but the patient part of me is glad because, you know, getting some good dragon plots takes time, and maybe they'll really turn this ship around. That's not the only ship out in the streaming seas. Uh, There's a rather large ship, a a cruise ship. You might call it a Disney cruise, because I'm talking, of course, about the unstoppable juggernaut of the streaming universe, Disney, and uh, Disney+. And I guess this is a segment we could just start doing called What Did Bob Chapek Say This Week? Because Bob Chapek, CEO of Disney, just loves to say things that are sometimes... Uh, sometimes cause a great scandal with their LGBTQ plus employees and sometimes causes us to go, what's that, Bob? Maybe that's the name of the segment. What's that, Bob? Well, this week in What's That, Bob, I'm going to read you a quote from Bob Chapek and I just want to gauge your reaction, Diane, okay? This was at a uh, Wall Street Journal event. He was being interviewed on stage and he said, quote, If you're on Disney+, Plus, we should be aware of what happened, what you experienced, what you liked, the last time you visited a park, and vice versa. He's he's referring to a Disney theme park, a Disney world, not just any park, just to be clear. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then he added, when you're in a park, we should know what your viewing habits are on Disney+. Plus." It is creepy. It is creepy. I will say I give this a not great, Bob. Not great, Bob. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, Play again here on What's That, Bob? I do, however, feel that this sort of data is um, kind of the bread and butter of the streaming industry. They want to know what you're watching and exactly where and when. The crossover into the parks does add an element of spookiness just in time for your Day of the Dead. Yeah, you know, there is something where it both makes perfect sense that they would want to tailor that experience because they see Disney as this kind of overarching, almost, I'm going to say it, almost a metaverse, except Mm -hmm. instead of putting on goggles, they want you to get on an airplane to Orlando. Uh, But at the same time, how will they achieve that? How will they know everything you did at a Disney theme park? They they certainly have a lot of ways to track you there, so that is not actually technically impossible, but it does make you uh, begin to wonder, are they tracking me when I go to the bathroom at Disney? Are they tracking me when I like get up in the middle of the night and use the minibar? I am certain for billing reasons they're tracking that. And then how will that influence my Disney Plus recommendations? It is a, a very creepy thing. At the same time, they don't have to like hack into your phone to get this data because we give it all away all the time, you know? Um, I'm sure if you look at the fine print in your Disney Plus, you know, contract, they, they know exactly what you're watching, what device you're watching it on, and when. So 
I'm sure they do know when you're going to the bathroom in a Disney park. I I feel confident that they do. Yeah, and they use that to decide when you're going to be ready to watch Good Burger. No, they don't (laughs) own that IP anymore, do they? Did they lose that IP? I'm not sure. But I do have an example Bob Chapek gave in this interview that is uh, maybe a little less creepy, but also a little less exciting. He said, uh, maybe you're at a theme park and, you know, you go on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And Bob Chapek says, well, quote, what you get is special programming tailored to Pirates of the Caribbean that would be unique to people like you that is personalized towards your preferences. End weird quote, Bob. Your, your personalized preferences. My, I, I've just always imagined that if you went, Chris, can I personalize this for you? My answer would be, yes, Pirates of the Caribbean, please. <laughs> can we put some handsome vampires in it? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering, is it, uh, we're going to show you Pirates of the Caribbean infused programming? There's only so much Pirates of the Caribbean content. So what do you mean you're going to just nudge me towards uh, seafaring? Uh, shows? Uh, it, it's just the, the, the crossover is very creepy. I, I, I do wonder, I think that's the way we're going to go. And then when, at one point, is there like a Netflix park? You know, are oh, we just going to... Oh, oh, the Squid Game uh, corner of the <laughs> Netflix park, going to be a big hit. Huge. Squid Game Land? Squid Game World. I'd go to that. I would too. And, you know, they could do a really good crown-infused area. Uh, We don't have it on our show notes. But yet again, Netflix and the stars of The Crown are out reminding people this is a fictional show. For some reason, Judi Dench got involved this year and thinks that it's somehow a scandal that the fifth season of this show that has been on TV for, like, six years now, people might not know it's a drama. Yeah, they're very worried about that. That's why I think um, we need a theme park where we can make the crown a little Buckingham Palace and we can go see this one's not the real Buckingham Palace. This is the little Buckingham Palace here at Netflixtopia. I'm pretty sure they have something like that in Vegas. <laughs> well, I would go. Netflix should just buy a casino. We're almost there. We're almost there. Sign me up. And you know what else you could sign up for at Netflix? Basic with ads. I don't have any new news about Basic with ads. I just had to take a moment to remind you, coming soon, Basic with ads. This month, Basic with ads. It's Thursday. Oh my God, that's so soon. I'm not ready. Well, you will have some time to think about it because the great password crackdown that will force you to go Basic with ads, that's coming in 2023. And we do have a little bit of follow-up on that. Uh, We've mentioned in the past uh, that Netflix was doing two different pilot programs in Latin America. One uh, in a collection of countries would charge you for an additional home if it detected you were using your account outside of the home a lot uh, or in a different location for an extended period of time. Uh, The other one in some other countries, uh, that one charged you for uh, additional users. So you could basically add a sub-account to your existing account. And uh, we've asked a lot of questions, as we've talked about this, about how they would deal with the multiple homes scenario, because that seems super dicey for people who travel or live in two places. Uh, Well, good news. They've decided that's not the route they're going to go. And bad news, that means we're going to have to do that whole sub-account thing, probably. I do think the sub-account thing seems simpler. It Uh, makes more sense. You know, per person, not per location. 
that that does make sense to me. And as someone who does sometimes travel between a few different places for work and stuff, I'm relieved to hear this choice. I did think it was funny that uh, Latin American users really did not like the uh, add an additional home option <laughs> or the option they were forced to take. I wonder if option is really the right mm. word there. <laughs> but they still. Well, you always have the option to stop using Netflix. <laughs> well, and they did. And the ha- the trending hashtag was Chow Netflix, which is so good. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy that when it comes around here. Chow Netflix. Chow. Chow. But you know what? You don't have to say ciao to Netflix yet because you've got some time. And I do think at the end of the day, it's really more an interesting case of the language that triggers people because they're ba- homes, sub-users, it's all based on the same data. Are you accessing Netflix from different locations a lot? Are you simultaneously accessing Netflix from different locations? That's all the kind of data that feeds into their guess as to whether you're password sharing or not. And it is a very educated guess, but at the end of the day, it's kind of a guess. Uh, but obviously, the language around multiple homes really pushes people's buttons whereas the language around adding additional users i think implicitly people go yeah you got me i am sharing it with my grandmother my uncle my ex-boyfriend and their children or something you know uh so i i I think at the end of the day we're in for the same kind of situation but i think it's also very telling that they know how risky this is that they spent all these months testing it in latin america to make sure that not just the functional technical details work, but that almost more importantly, that they pick the right language to lessen the blowback. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think it's it's good to mention here, too, that this did affect millions of people. It's not like they were testing it in a tiny market. I mean, it's smaller than the UCAN region, but, um, you know, it, it was in millions of homes that they had tested this and people really did not respond well. No, they did not. And coming soon, we will not respond well, but we'll process (laughs) it, our feelings here on the podcast. You can send us your feelings, listener, podcast at streamageddon.com. We'll help you get through this together. Happy to support. Always, always. And you know who else needs some support right now? I'm just guessing. A little place called NBC Universal. Which is universally home of Peacock. Everybody loves to talk about Peacock, except um, uh, anyone who's ever tried to watch anything on Peacock. But thankfully, it seems like not many people have ever tried. So again, not a lot of people have to worry about Peacock. But, But Diane, are you just in general worried about the future of Peacock? I sure am. I was distressed to learn that Peacock doesn't Peacock comedy anymore. That's what's got me worried, because as we all know, uh, NBC used to Peacock comedy back in the good old days uh, when 30 Rock just kind of dictated the corporate tone of the entire network. Really a golden age. Uh, And then we actually got the service Peacock, and it launched with some very buzzy comedies from big creators, and basically all of those have been canceled now. Or... In this week's very interesting twist, Girls 5 Eva, not canceled, but not on Peacock. Season 3 of Girls 5 Eva is coming to Netflix. To Netflix, a, a network, a streamer, where if you say, 
are they going to do a third season? I go, don't hold your breath. Well, here they are, not just doing a third season, but they are actively hunting down a third season of a pre-existing show. They are going full Cobra Kai here. Because if you are paying attention, Cobra Kai was rescued from YouTube and has become a hit sensation on Netflix. However, I want to back up to that part where I said rescued from YouTube, because YouTube's original programming, that didn't work out so hot. And, ooh, you don't want to be compared to that, do you? No, you really don't. I do think, so uh, we have a link we'll put in the show notes from Sam Barsanti at the AV Club talking about this move. Sam basically describes it as Netflix as like an older bully stealing Peacock's lunch money. And while I get it, Netflix is obviously massive. Uh, NBC Universal is not <laughs> some some poor child who needs defending necessarily. I, no. I thought that was a little unfair. It seems like what Netflix did is swoop in and save this show. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that there were not any obvious rumblings that the show was in trouble is really intriguing because it suggests that uh, Peacock likes the show and that the show might even have decent uh, numbers, but that whatever's going on behind the scenes at Peacock, they do not have the budget for another season of that show. Maybe it's a pricey show. I, you know, it's got original music. It's got some big talent involved. Uh, I don't know, what, but, but boy, if they hated it or if it was a flop, there would not be any reason for Netflix to pick it up. And if they didn't care, they would have just announced it was canceled. And then there would have been a like, save Girls 5 Eva campaign and Netflix would have swooped in. So instead, they intentionally did something in the background to say, psst. Does anyone want Girls 5 Eva? Good deal on a Girls 5 Eva. Psst. I'm guessing this show is not that expensive. And maybe that's me being cynical about the fact that it's led by women. But I I really don't. It doesn't seem like it's super expensive beyond perhaps the music. But it's a lot of original music and not stuff that they've licensed out. Um, but it this show, to me, fits on Netflix. Uh, you know, Kimmy Schmidt did pretty well there, I think. Uh, yeah. It seems like a natural place for it. Uh, I'm going to keep watching it. Oh, me too. And I, I think Netflix actually is a good home for it because it fits in that Kimmy Schmidt 30 Rock genre that has been a real good comfort food genre for Netflix. They, they've done good work there with those same creators, Tina Fey, Robert Carlock, uh, Girls 5 Ever's Meredith Scardino. Uh, you know, so yeah, that also could just be something where they have a good relationship with those people. And as things started to unravel at Peacock, you know, it just naturally came together. That's also very possible. Should be noted, the uh, Girls 5 Eva deal on uh, Netflix for the existing seasons of Girls 5 Eva, seasons 1 and 2, non-exclusive, which suggests Peacock probably wants to keep airing those as well. Not that that's a great way to draw in new subscribers because the new episodes will be on Netflix. But again, I, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's Peacock saying we like this show, but we are not going to make another season. Anyone want, a, you know, anyone want to pick up a show that's in really good shape, basically? You know, it's at a good point in its trajectory where you could get several more seasons out of it. It's kind of found its groove. Absolutely. Really funny ensemble cast. And I think found its groove is perfect. Just enough punnery. <laughs> well, you know, that is not the only TV show that is making news at Peacock. And since we're talking about Peacock and what, what the fates have in store for Peacock, I want to mm, have a little fun with this because, you know, I love Peacock. We Peacock. 
Peacock. And uh, as I mentioned, they've basically canceled their entire comedy lineup that they launched with. That would be Saved by the Bell, canceled after two seasons. Punky Brewster, canceled even faster than you can say the phrase Punky Brewster. And Rutherford Falls, which we recently noted canceled after two seasons, also had just really found its groove. Big bummer that that does not have a bright future somewhere. Uh, Although, hey, maybe Netflix wants to get like a package deal. Maybe there's a combo platter that Peacock can offer. Uh, But that is, that is uh, three shows that they basically launched with. They came out kind of over the original launch window of Peacock, all gone. The only one of these shows that is getting to a third season is Girls 5 Ever. So also, they have almost nothing that's made it to a third season in general, uh, with the exception of the Amber Ruffin show. But that's a late-night talk show, and it's great, and that is in its third season, but not really the same thing. I do love Amber Ruffin. I do, too. I do, too. And honestly, I would really still be on team poacher for the New Daily Show. Just poacher for the New Daily Show. Everything that's good needs to get out of Peacock while the getting out's good. I'm just saying. You're not wrong. But you know what? They're not totally out of the game because there are some shows they've renewed. For example, Killing It has been renewed for a second season. Ryan Johnson's upcoming original show, Poker Face, is being billed as a comedy mystery drama drama mystery comedy mystery comedy drama some combination of those words one of them is the word comedy so sure that's coming in january Uh, and they still have a few sitcoms in development but i don't want to just tell you what they are what fun would that be no no diane do you know what we have to do if we're going to talk about the upcoming sitcoms and dramas in development at peacock i have to lose a game That's correct. You are about to lose this game. But you're going to have a lot of fun on the way. Because this game, uh, based on the wild success of last week's game, is called Peacock or Not. Peacock or Not is the game where I'm going to read you the names of four shows. Each question, four shows. One of them is a real show in development at Peacock. Is it Peacock or Not? We're about to find out. Are you excited? Mm, Great answer. I don't, I don't know my Peacock. <laughs> That's okay. That's why this is fun. Again, none of these are on Peacock, so you are at the same disadvantage anyone would be at in this game. And I am going to give you one lifeline you can use. Uh, one out of these five questions, you can ask me to read the description of the show. Obviously, title redacted. So if there's one where you want to know the description of the true show, if you think that will help you guess the name, I am here for you with that very important piece of information. Okay? I'll do my best. That's all we can ask. That's all we can ask of Peacock, too. But we'll get there. Question one. One of these is the name of a show in development at Peacock. Is it A, Ted, B, Better Off Ted, C, Ted Talks on Peacock, or D, Teddy Ruxpin the Animated Series? Isn't Better Off Ted already a thing? I think that this might be C. I'm so sorry. It is not TED Talks on Peacock, but that does roll off the tongue really nicely. The answer is actually A, Ted. And if you're going Ted, now Ted, that is familiar. Is Ted something? Yes, this is a a, a series, a sitcom from Seth MacFarlane set in the universe of Ted, the talking teddy bear movies. 
Is Mark Wahlberg involved? I don't even, I didn't click that far. As soon as I realized it was the Ted I was thinking of, I thought, damn, I wish they were rebooting Better Off Ted, which is a real TV show. I'm glad you caught that. Better Off Ted, excellent, short-lived Fox sitcom. I think it was on Fox. It has Fox vibes. Has big Fox vibes. So true. Now, maybe one of these shows has big Fox vibes because we are at question two. Question two. Again, one of these. A real show, really in development at Peacock. Is it A, Zero, B, Zilch, C, Bupkis, or D, Nadamucho? It's Bupkis, and it's the Pete Davidson project. Yes, Bupkis is a, uh, it's described as an action comedy that is a heightened, fictionalized version of Pete Davidson's life, starring Pete Davidson, Joe Pesci, and Edie Falco. Uh, when they were doing the upfronts about this show, I know that Pete Davidson was asked to present, and he only referred to Peacock as the cock. That is so beautiful. I think they've got a great rebranding opportunity there. <laughs> they would at the very least show up in a lot more Google searches. Oh, boy. And that brings us to question three. Uh, Peacock, as we know, loves to reboot shows. Uh, Saved by the Bell, Punky Brewster, rebooted, canceled, rebooted, canceled. So which one of these is the next show that they will reboot and then probably cancel? Uh, is it A, ER, B, Battlestar Galactica, C, News radio or D, just shoot me. Well, I know what I want it to be, but I think it's Battlestar Galactica. That is correct. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, a reboot of the reboot of the original show. Uh, this was announced as part of the original like Peacock hype tour in late 2019. Still doesn't exist. And it should be produced by Sam Esmail, who was one of the producers on The Resort, which we watched over the summer on Peacock. So he does mm. have a relationship with them still. Uh, however, in March of 2021, writer and producer Michael Lessie, Leslie? There's two S's in it, so I got thrown off. All the names with all the letters. It's hard. I, you know, I, I watched for a living. I don't read for a living. Uh, but he has left the project, and so now they have no idea who's actually the showrunner, it sounds like. So maybe they're not gonna make it, but they say they are. So it's the answer to this question. Congratulations, you got it right. Make it news radio. That would be my answer, too. But you know, we can talk about news radio some other time. And perhaps, perhaps we will. But question number four... Which of these is a reality show coming to Peacock? Is it A, The Somber Art of Danish Swashbuckling, B, The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning, C, The Delicate Art of Norwegian Horseshoe, or D, The Lost Art of Estonian Bricklaying? You must be joking. These are not shows. One of these is the title of a reality show coming to Peacock. Uh, and since you have not used your lifeline yet, I will give you the lifeline on this one. It is produced by Amy Poehler. I want to say... Okay, wait, 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 wait. I want to say B, The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. That is correct. It's apparently a 2018 nonfiction book of the same name. And on this show, each episode will feature a different person at a crossroads in their life that will get visited by a Swedish death cleaner to help them organize their homes. What is a death cleaner? 
you know, I didn't read that far, but the <laughs> link to variety is in the show notes. Something they do in, in Sweden. Sweden was the answer. Sweden was the answer. Boy, I really had to do a round trip of the, the northern Europe region in order to get those fake show names. But um, to be fair, I would watch The Somber Art of Danish Swashbuckling. It sounds like a spinoff of Our Flag Means Death. I would watch it if it weren't on Peacock. <laughs> Yeah, that's a shame. That's a shame. But hey, one more bonus question for you. Which of these is a show coming soon that you might be able to watch on Peacock, though you have said you won't, but you might be able to watch which of these? Is it A, who wrote that? B, Downey wrote that? C, based on a true story? Or D, Ryan Wilson and the Geography of Bliss? Mm -hmm. Uh, just distressed noises coming from over here. And I'm going to say, who wrote that? Guess what? All four of those are actual titles of actual shows in development at Peacock. No wonder they have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. Well, there you have it. Uh, Peacock or not, you're not that bad at Peacock or not. It's a shame Peacock is not better at Peacock or not. I'm going to watch the Bupkis show. I am too. I am too. Actually, Bupkis, I'm very excited for. If they ever do make the Sam Esmail Battlestar Galactica reboot, sign me up. That is like catnip to me, someone who mainlined the original Battlestar Galactica reboot. Uh, and I'm just going to put this out here. Still time to reboot Better Off Ted. Sure. I guess maybe Disney owns that IP now. We could do it on Hulu. And speaking of things we could do on Hulu... We're going to review a show that just wrapped its first season on Hulu. This is, in fact, what we like to call a rewind review because we have finished all 10 episodes of season one of The Patient. Will there be a second season? That would be a spoiler. So you will have to continue past this brief musical interlude if you want to find out. Yes, we're ready to rewind review The Patient on Hulu. Uh, brought to you by FX. It's an FX on Hulu show, but it did not air on FX. So what does FX on Hulu mean? It means a vibe. It, it sure does. And I would uh, say this show is full of FX vibes. Oh, overwhelmingly so, and I mean that as a compliment. I love my moody FX shows. Well, you know, let's just get that out of the way then. This is a super moody FX show, and we are going to spoil all of the twists and turns it took in this dark, moody journey through the uh, psychology of a killer and the psychology of his therapist. Mm, beautiful little marriage of, of internal struggles. Really? Yeah. It uh, explores some uh, interiority that I don't normally see on television. Yeah, and it does it in a way that's not boring. And and honestly, this kind of inner monologue, inner conversation with yourself gimmick, for lack of a better word, uh, is something I typically don't like. Uh, so what we're talking about on this show, if you have not watched it and you are just along for the ride, well, welcome. Uh, the Patient stars uh, Steve Carell as Dr. Alan Strauss, who is uh, a therapist, you know, uh, later middle age. His, his children are grown. His wife, we learn pretty quickly, passed from cancer. Uh, he's Jewish. His wife was a, a cantor in a uh, kind of liberal progressive uh, Jewish community. And his uh, grown son, Ezra, uh, becomes a super orthodox, like Hasidic Jew living in 
uh, that part of Brooklyn, completely bought into that culture, full transformation from this liberal upbringing to this very conservative flavor of Judaism. And that is uh, a, the internal struggle that Dr. Strauss really addresses with himself during his captivity. Because, oh yeah, the premise of the show is that a serial killer named Sam abducts Dr. Strauss so that Dr. Strauss can cure him of wanting to be a serial killer. That's the external drama. A really fascinating concept um, and two really strong performances anchoring the show between Donald Gleason as Sam and I think especially Steve Carell uh, as Dr. Strauss. I mean, I think that's going to be the main takeaway of this show for me is, wow, Steve Carell acted really beautifully. Yeah, and it's funny as you say that. I, I hadn't taken a moment to appreciate what a tour de force his performance is here because he has shown us as an actor for many, many years now that he has these depths, that he is so talented and a great in dramatic roles. I think of movies like Foxcatcher and even mm-hmm. Little Miss Sunshine, where which was one of the first movies where he really brought out this deeper side of himself. Uh, and just not that he was hiding, but that we didn't know him for that. And he really, you know, just in a big picture, the career pivot he's taken, especially after the success of The Office, which could really define your entire career as an actor, uh, he's really, really found this completely different direction that is clearly very satisfying to him as an artist. Yeah, and who wouldn't want to work with these creators? Joel Fields and Joe Weisberg. Um, We'd spent a lot of time talking about them on the previous episode. They made The Americans, which we're both pretty super fans of, I'd say. Oh, yeah. And I think I'm glad you brought it up now because we're going to bring it up again when we talk about how the show ended. I felt like it was a very Americans ending. But but first, but first, uh, we're talking about that internal monologue slash dialogue that is mostly the realm of Dr. Strauss. We definitely get some interesting internal life from Donald Gleason as uh, Sam the serial killer, but he doesn't have scenes in his own mind palace, essentially. Like, we, we often go into Dr. Strauss's imagination or his nightmares in some cases, uh, but the most uh, concrete example of that is he starts to have these conversations with his dead therapist, his own therapist, who died years ago, not uh, beyond, there is nothing more to know about his death or anything other than he's dead. <laughs> he's super dead, which also gives us the clue that, ooh, uh, Dr. Strauss used to be in therapy, doesn't seem to be in therapy anymore because it's probably really hard for him to find a therapist who he can both confide in and can push back on him because he's a very strong-willed person. And what we see in his scenes with his imaginary David Allen Greer, because who who doesn't want an imaginary David Allen Greer in their life, uh, we can see that their relationship was one where uh, his his therapist, Charlie, David Allen Greer's character, could really call out Dr. Strauss on his bullshit. And he gets called out on his bullshit in his internal dialogues with Charlie as the season goes on. And I, again, 
am not usually a fan of the let me go to my mind palace and talk to my imaginary friend device. I found that to be uh, an absolute deal breaker in season one of The Flight Attendant on HBO Max, for example. A lot of people love that show. I could not get past how much time was spent with her talking to her imaginary friend in order to just get a lot of exposition out of the way. And, I, you know, some of that is true for this show, but I don't feel like they used it as a device for exposition as much as they used it as a device for uh, revelation. I agree, and I think because the because Charlie calls Alan out so much, those scenes were always dramatic in a way in which um, sometimes therapy scenes can lack dramatic content because it's just two people talking at each other. Yeah, and and obviously these two people are two people who I could watch read the phone book. And, and they have a, a real sense of calm in their scenes together, which in a show that is otherwise so tense, where you are so nervous for what's going to happen through so much of the, the runtime, when he goes into those scenes with Charlie, everything gets real still, real mm-hmm. quiet. Uh, and it doesn't, it doesn't ratchet down the tension necessarily, but it does give you this breathing space and it kind of draws extra focus. I agree with that. No, I think this is one of the most tense shows I've ever watched. It is very intense, and I held my breath through the finale. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it's tense, but in small doses. And we talked about this in our first episode on the show. Most of the episodes of The Patient are under 30 minutes long, which for a show in this genre and for a show with this much tension running through it, I found that to be a really interesting choice. I don't know if we came down on the same side of it, at the end, I'm curious how you felt after the whole season, but I really appreciated it because I often only wanted so much of this tension. 30 minutes was often the most I could take in a single sitting. I think I could have taken more and I wanted more as a viewer, but that feeling of wanting more and being right on the edge of my seat and then having to wait a week required some, for lack of a better word, patience that I think was really helpful for me as a viewer. It made me um, get as close to someone who's only watching and not experiencing this can get to being an Allen situation of, oh my God, what is going to happen to me? Uh, I really felt uh, empathy for his situation. So in that way, I found it effective, even though I didn't find it pleasant. Ooh, that's an interesting, interesting way to look at it. I noticed and found uh, also effective the way that they slowly crept the runtime up over the course Mm -hmm. of the season. Because there, I did begin to tolerate longer journeys into this darkness and i wanted more you are right it absolutely uh part of the i think the genius of this short runtime and the week-to-week uh release is that you do want to leave each episode leave them wanting more leave your audience going i wish i could watch another one right now because you left me with such a great cliffhanger or just you left me wanting more of this story great you should want more i think one of the things we struggle with in the the binge era is shows often just dump everything on you and uh it's kind of like eating a whole bag of potato chips you you feel gross afterwards whereas if you just have one chip you go oh i could really go for another chip and then they Mm -hmm. hold it out out of your reach for a week and you can just give me that chip hulu and then it's really good 
And then you get a sponsored ad by Frito-Lay. <laughs> you do, you do, you do. You get the same sponsored ad by Frito-Lay five times in the course of the show. Uh, but then as the season goes on, they're like, okay, this week you get two chips. This week you get three chips. And then we get to the season finale, and the season finale is a full 47-minute episode of a drama. It, and what I really love is they did not creep up to hour and a half episodes, unlike <clears throat> Lord of the Rings. Uh, instead, they they crept up to just the normal length of a network TV drama. Yeah, and I thought that they had really earned that by the finale. The world also expands over the course of the episode. In the first episode, you're really basically just in this room with Sam and Alan. I mean, there are some flashes to Alan's life before that with his other patients, but it's quite locked in, which I think was also really effective. But by the end of it, we're learning more about uh, Alan's family, his work life, a little bit more about Sam's life outside of this, too. And so as the world expanded, I did feel that there was space for 47 minutes and it might not have felt complete in only 24 minutes or so. Yeah. And they, they again, they edged their way up there real carefully. The week before was like 38 minutes and then before was 35 minutes. They didn't just jump up. They did as they opened the world up and gave us more to play with. They gave themselves a little more time to do that. And I, I agree that was a really natural. It did not feel like, hey, this episode's longer than before. Each episode felt like the right length for the content. I have a question for you. Do you feel that the series, The Patient, felt long enough? Yes. Yes, yes. I do. I did not need more of this by the end. And and had it continued on, it was it was at the point where this story was where it would be in reality, which is that this is an untenable situation. You know, Sam has abducted a man, locked him in his basement, and said, cure me. And they go through the course of the season through some nice roller coaster in terms of, you know, does uh, Sam think that he's making any progress? Does Alan think that he's making any progress? There's kind of a middle portion of the season where you can tell Alan has sort of given up on treating Sam and is just trying to figure out how to get out. And then there's another turn, and maybe he is trying to treat Sam again. And then it all kind of comes together in the finale where, you know, cards on the table, you know, Alan, Dr. Strauss, finally acknowledges the reality that Sam's never going to let him go. Right. And and so- the scene when he realizes that, I just want to call out, is, is literally almost silent. It is Sam shows up with a mini fridge. Mm. and plugs in the mini fridge and like opens the door to make sure there's enough clearance for the mini fridge door to open and then says to Alan, you know, make a list of what you want. I'll stock it with anything. And he leaves. And this is after Alan had made a very heartfelt seemingly pitch uh, for Sam to let him go, telling Sam, you know, I won't betray you. I won't call the police, which we as viewers, I think, know is a lie. But he really made the case. There was a moment in that scene where I believed that maybe Alan would respect the the so-called confidentiality he claimed he would have with Sam, which, again, I think legally is not really how doctor-patient confidentiality works. At this point, Dr. Strauss has seen Sam murder people in front of him but he makes a very convincing plea and and they don't say no right away so you sit in this for a scene or two wondering just like you realize alan is sitting in this wondering and then the answer is a mini fridge and you realize he's never going to get out and at that point well 
there's only two ways for the show to end. And so there's no point in another episode. I agree with that. I did think that there were a few parts of the show that were underdeveloped. This is a show that on the whole I like a lot and I think is really good and I've recommended it to people. So when I say these are kind of quibbles, I'll say, not like big complaints. But number one, I never I wanted more from Candace, uh, Sam's mother's character, uh, a, a really solid performance. But we don't learn that much about her. And I felt like since she was one of the central people here, I wanted more access. I wanted to learn more about what she was doing because I didn't understand her at the end. And to that point, there really aren't any women in the show that are developed at all, which is fine. But since there are a few that are introduced, it's like, why did you make none of them interesting? Was it, Part of what I loved so much about the Americans, I think, were Elizabeth and then also the Margot Martindale character. And this just never had that. None, none of the women were very interesting, which felt like a shame. Yeah, um, I think that's a fair critique, especially because even in uh, Dr. Strauss's personal story, you know, the, the wife is his wife is somewhat developed, but also just kind of a, a archetype. And his daughter is pure archetype. His daughter is just like the good daughter. They get along really well. She's also a therapist, so they can talk about that kind of stuff. We basically never see her until the finale. And then her job is to be sad. Who in the world has a child and has no complicated feelings about them? Sorry, that's just who in the world has a parent and no complicated feelings about them. I'm sorry, I just don't buy that as a piece of fiction. Other ways is so rich and nuanced and psychologically real. It's like, actually, we had a great relationship and everything's good. I was like, what? Which is basically no. what he says, because he writes them a letter at right. the end and hit the portion of the letter to his daughter is like, well, like all people, we sometimes disagreed. Okay, you're great. Now on to my son. We've had a terrible relationship, and I've come to learn many things about myself, and please forgive me, and here's a laundry list of explanations and things I want to tell you personally, just you, my son. Just don't write in the daughter character. I was about to say. She I added nothing. Don't know why she had to be there. Functionally, when he's missing, they do leverage her sort of as a device to show us what's going on. But honestly, even that could have worked. I Part of me is like, did they just need someone for Ezra to talk to in those later scenes? And they were like, well, he wouldn't really have that conversation with his wife, or it would be very different if he was having it with his wife. And, and we want to have it in Alan's house. And why would his wife be at Alan's house? Makes more sense if it's his i don't know his sister can he have a daughter okay let's add a daughter that, it did feel like that yeah and just for, that was pretty bad but um other parts of the show were so good that like you can totally overlook that and still have an enjoyable maybe not enjoyable a satisfying viewing experience yeah uh, what, what what are you enjoying is a dark uh, very personal <laughs> question there if you're like sam fortner you might have a very enjoyable experience but then i think we have to call the police on you yeah i did have a moment at the end where i was asking myself to what end what is this story saying about the world? Is it is there anything? Is it really just about these people? Maybe I was looking for more because of the time in which it came out. Um, we have this show that is so much about Judaism and in a really fascinating way. 
and it's coming out while there's like all these horrendous hate crimes happening around in you know issues of anti-semitism in our country and so in that way it felt like a really prescient conversation to be having but i never really understood why what sam's relationship to ellen's judaism was or like is sam a white supremacist is that part of what he's doing is that part of what he stands in for all we know about him is that he lives somewhere vaguely in the united states and he listens to country music and eats uh very well but like what 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 is this show saying about our country and our moment is it nothing if so that's okay it's just so such a pivot from the americans so i don't know yeah i think that's an interesting line of questioning because it's not just one question and, and in one <laughs> way no i think it's you're asking the big picture question i would have at the end is this was an, a fascinating character study a- and mm. the performances uh, absolutely seal the deal so to speak it does not need to have a bigger message or a bigger meaning because it achieved the goal of telling a absolutely engrossing story in which two characters come together and both change in uh, unexpected but also somewhat inevitable ways and if that's all it is they absolutely achieved that brilliantly through writing direction and acting the, you know that's that is the platonic ideal of good storytelling in its simplest form but then you go okay but what are the themes and why now and why would what do i take away from this as somebody in the zeitgeist and i do have the same questions about does this mean any more than it was meant to mean and it also makes me go do we sometimes read more uh, deeper meaning into these shows than than is ever meant to be there and because that's such a human thing to do especially with art uh i you know you mentioned the americans and i think yeah, on the one hand the americans has a lot of timely themes about uh you know what it means to be an american uh but also at its core the americans is a spy thriller about a marriage in distress true and and uh on the merits it stands up on both fronts i think and this one just is a different thing and i should let it be a different thing but i think i was missing the stuff that i loved so much about the americans um and that's always going to happen with the when you've had a massive success like that you know people are going to judge you by by that so there were just a few things at the end too that like well, we should talk about the end, because I know this is a place where not everyone liked the ending, but the endings endings are hard, and for an ending to be debatable or controversial, I think is often a sign that it was a good ending, because you didn't play it safe. Mm-hmm. You, made a, you made a choice. And I like the choice they made in this ending, and I, it reminds me a lot of how they ended The Americans as well. Uh, and both of those shows are shows where you could the characters are left in a place or at least enough of the characters are left in a place where the story could continue but thematically emotionally you know that it shouldn't and it feels complete and i i absolutely felt that way about the finale of this show but we do have a link from uh, decider because a lot of people were asking joel and joe is there going to be a season two and they had to come out and go well no not really I, I'm not surprised to hear that because Steve Carell's character is dead, super dead, and Donald has asked his mother to lock him up in the basement where he had locked up, uh, you know, Doctor Strauss, and and that to me 
says everything we need to know. Am I sitting here going, well, you know, having your mother lock you up in the basement, that is not a cure. This will not really solve your problems. There are a hundred questions I have about what will you do when she dies? What will you do if she gets sick? What will she do if you just say, unlock me, mom? But I, I have zero interest in watching that as a TV show. Those questions are meant to be left for me to wonder and go, oh, that's going to be tough. So the only way that I could see this going on, and I will say that I like the fact that they killed off Alan. That was the only way that that could have ended. Yes. If they had, if he had like somehow escaped, that would have been truly awful. Well, I wait, think. Can, can we talk for a second about the fake out there? Because they did do a very yeah. nice fake out where for a moment, Alan has a totally harebrained plan to get uh, Sam to call the cops on himself by holding a sharp uh, foot cream tube uh, <laughs> to the neck of, of Sam's mother. And it's funny, but also that foot cream tube that he's been sharpening for like three episodes now was like the Chekhov's gun of the back half of the season. You knew something was going to happen with that. And, mm. and, and it could have been Dr. Strauss killing himself with it multiple times where we thought he might try to attack Sam with it. And then he uses it to take uh, Sam's mother hostage, puts it at her neck like he's going to cut her, her jugular. And and it cuts ahead to Sam, I'm sorry, to Dr. Strauss, seemingly alive and well and having dinner with his son, who we know he now wants to reconcile with because uh, he's gone on this internal journey through the, the season. Um and, and for a moment, for a moment, it, you, you do think like, wow, maybe they are gonna keep him alive. But the twist is that he had to murder Sam's mother to live. And I, that was enough of a sacrifice in terms of his morality and his character that I for a second did believe that. I went, oh, wow, they made that choice, the choice to keep him alive, but to have it cost him something, you know, dearly. Um, but within seconds, within seconds of this, he sees Charlie sitting across the dinner table at his son's house. And as soon as we see Charlie sitting across the dinner table at his son's house, we go, right, Charlie's dead. This isn't real. And we cut to Alan being choked to death by Sam. I think that that moment would have been more effective for me if I cared at all about Candace. Because he has, you know, the sort of shiv thing up to her throat. And I was like, I don't care if he kills her. I mean, I care for him. I don't care at her, about her at all. She's just not interesting. Or she's interest. She could have been interesting, but they didn't make her interesting. And there's 10 minutes left to the show. So, you know. Well, that's why I believed they would kill her. Yeah. In that moment, I'm like, well, yeah, I guess he can kill her because that's a sacrifice. But also I would be like, yeah, kill her. I don't I don't like her. She's enabling a murderer. Yeah. I mean, and since the show has already shown us some graphic murders, I didn't think we really needed to see Sam jump onto Alan. And like the moment where he initiates the killing, we see the moment that Alan dies. Um, and so Alan's death worked for me. I, I think that's right. So I think blase. It's to go. Alan's death worked for it me. Did. I mean, there were two ways to end the show, like you said, and this was the right one, I think, I on agree. that front. Other parts of the finale, I don't know about. Well, what do you think about the final scene, the final visual of Ezra going to see a therapist? Uh, it was okay. It was okay. Right. He's a great actor. He's great, yes. Uh, and, and, you know, in some ways, a 
natural conclusion to end on him since so much of the show was about his relationship with his father and we see you know we see uh, alan dr strauss come to terms with his failures in his relationship with his son and then we see him you know essentially deliver this letter to uh, ezra via sam sam and i do want to pause on that for a second because there's a, a big uh, act of faith let's say where you know, Dr. Strauss writes this letter on a little yellow legal pad to his two children, and then he, we realize he sets up this situation for Sam to kill him. Like, at the end of the day, we realize, oh, this was essentially suicide, but it was suicide mm-hmm. by murder instead of suicide by suicide. And I I do wish they'd interrogated that maybe a little bit more. Why did he choose to die that way instead of uh, taking his own life? Was this something to do with his kind of religious awakening in his relationship with Ezra? Or was this just uh, he can't bring himself to kill himself and uh, he wanted to to do it uh, some other way? Or, or was this in his mind some kind of treatment towards Sam where he goes, I need to show you to prove to you that you will kill again. And the only way to do that safely is to have you kill me. Yeah, I think also, you know, there was an issue about whether or not Sam would kill his father. And at that point, he transferred the fatherly feelings onto onto Alan at that point, I think. So it, the show, to me, has some interesting things to say about generational trauma. And I think, you know, both with Sam and how he's, um, you know, become this violent murderer based on abuse he suffered as a child but also you know uh for alan he has these flashback imaginings of uh being at auschwitz so that too and and then seeing those echoes um for ezra to me in the ending, seeing how Ezra will process all this is a question I have. So ending with him in therapy, I think, is is a fine choice. Yeah, and, and it was a very, I don't know, it, as I said before, I thought the ending was very reminiscent of the end of the Americans because it was a, a, an acknowledgement that their lives will continue, that they mm-hmm. have been permanently changed. Nothing will ever be the same again. But their lives do go on one way or another, for better or for significantly worse. And ending on that um, kind of intake of breath that Ezra has, he's about to speak. He's about to open up to his therapist in in theory. Um, that That's a really beautiful and correct note to end on. Yeah. Uh, I, I liked that. I will say, so for me, the, the weakest part of the finale was the scene between Sam and his father. I don't really know why it was there. I can't believe he lives so close by. <laughs> it never came up before. Like, oh, that's interesting. And then he has this really lovely but kind of personalityless home. Like, this man seems to be quite well off. What is going on? It looked like he just like bought everything from a crate and barrel, but no one actually lived in the house. Where are we in the world? What is going on? What? That was terrible. That was not good. That was like the, I've never seen such bad writing from these people who I think create such good work. I was like this scene, just, just cut it. That's interesting. You do make me wonder because it it was kind of gleaming in some ways. Like they just just rushed out and done this set. I'm like, did did somebody give them a note that we should see this? And they went, fine, we'll write in the father for a scene. I don't know. Go to Crate and Barrel. Buy a bunch of stuff. 
I don't think yeah. that's what happened. But you're right that it had that vibe of we don't need this. We don't need to see this. And it opens, it asks a lot of questions that didn't need to be asked. Like, wow, if he's been so close all this time, why hasn't Sam tried to kill him sooner? Or why don't they interact ever? Or fill in the blank. Right. Yeah. It was it was weird. But then the show picked back up. <laughs> it yeah. got better. It recovered. Overall, I really, again, not enjoyed, but was engrossed by the storytelling here. And I absolutely had some jump scare moments, so to speak, with some of the twists. Because the tension, I mean, it's a masterclass in Mm -hmm. uh, small screen tension. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is still one of my favorite shows I've seen. I'm just, I love it so much that I can like nitpick it. And also I had like no quibbles until the end. And then I was like, ah, (laughs) right at the end. As happens, as happens. Did you listener watch The Patient and have some quibbles with the beginning, middle or end? Why don't you tell us? Podcast at streamageddon.com. Well, until next time, Diane, stay alive. But more importantly, keep streaming. Does anyone want Girls 5 Eva? Good deal on a Girls 5 Eva.